Hey everybody, welcome back to Hanging Out with Murder's Night Out, your new favorite podcast. I'm Anna. And I'm Emily. What? Uh-huh. Guess who's back? Back. Back, back again. <laughs> we got the band back together. <laughs> and you're listening to Murder's Night Out. Woo! <laughs> OMG, you guys, we have a stranger in the pod lab tonight. <laughs> stranger danger. <laughs> it's Emily. She's back. Yes, I took a nice little sabbatical and I'm back. They're here. <laughs> Welcome back, Emily. So what's been up with you? Well, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, life. It's been busy. Life has been crazy and busy and everybody's been sick and then not sick and then sick again. And then, you know, dealing with mental health issues. But you got a whole like Ebola virus running through I swear to God. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we have Emily back tonight. So that's exciting. Emily, you want to say hello to the wonderful fans out there that may have missed your voice? Hello. Let me know if you miss me. <laughs> I might show up next time. I'm, I'm, I missed you. I know. I miss you too. Life gets crazy. It is getting crazy. Yes. Now we're getting all sad and depressy. I mean, our no, story's enough it's sad be, and depressy. It's going to be fine. We need, some, <laughs> we need to be upbeat to make it through this next one. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, we just, uh, you know, wrapped up the West Memphis 3. I hope everybody enjoyed as much as you can uh enjoyed the um series and uh if you know if you have any feedback or any questions you know of course feel free to email us uh you can email us at murdersnightout at gmail.com follow us on facebook as well at mno true crime podcast or instagram at murders night out also you can follow the link in the show notes and find all of the platforms that we are listed on and you can also support the show by going to that home page that I just mentioned and click support the show it really helps us out and you know just you know show a show a little love and receive a little shout out you know exactly mm. and shout out to Lance cuz he's definitely <laughs> helped fill in that spot for me for the last couple of weeks and it's absolutely been, it's been you know I'm I'm back yeah I'm back. Uh, 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 uh. She's back. Uh, 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 uh. Okay. Well, <laughs> with that, now that we got all of that out of the way, let's dive into a crappy story. <laughs> Great. Thanks. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> vibing and surviving. Yes, that's here. my motto. Emily vibing was just telling me how she's trying to make it through this episode because she's sick again. I said she <sighs> needed to wrap herself in like some bubble wrap for somebody Dude, that works at a hospital. I don't know what's wrong with me. I literally, oh my god, I'm my immune system is just shitty. I told her that uh, I popped a Benny last night. You know, took some Benadryl. <laughs> I took a Benadryl last night to help me sleep because literally <laughs> I could not breathe. 
And then today I've just been surviving on Tylenol sinus and I, I took some Tylenol sinus before I came over here. I'm just vibing and surviving. Oxycontin, Xanax, Bar, yeah. Percocets, Lord. <laughs> the Bennies. <laughs> Fucking the Bennies. It's the mom version of the white oh, song. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. You need to add the melatonin in there. There tone you go. Ooh, you I go call s- it tone and toning. <laughs> the T. <tea. laughs> the T. Okay. Anyway. Sorry, guys. No, you're good. <laughs> okay. So. Our story begins in April 12th on in on April the 12th, 1981 in Ketty, California, where 14 year old Sheila Sharp had returned to her family's rented cabin from a sleepover at the Ketty Resort to walk into a horrifying scene. She discovered three brutally slain bodies which would later be determined to be her mother, 36-year-old Glenna Susan Sharp, or known as Sue, her brother, 15-year-old Johnny Sharp, and her brother's friend, 17-year-old Dana Wingate. So, who are the Sharps? Glenna Susan Sharp was born in March on March the 29th in 1945 in Springfield, Massachusetts. She was married to a man named James Sharp in which they had five children together. John Sharp, who I mentioned earlier, born in 1965. Sheila Sharp, born in 1967. Tina Sharp, July of 1968. Rick Sharp, 1971. And Greg Sharp, 1976. So at the time that this all occurs, John Sharp was 15 years old, Sheila 14, Tina was 12, Rick and Greg, I believe, were 10 and 5. So a little bit about them. Um, James, the father, was gone a lot. He actually only kind of lived at the house part-time because he was in the military. So he had ex- he stayed away from the house for extended periods of time. And things weren't always so great at the house. Um, later on, one of the survivors, Sheila, Sheila had written a book about the incident. And it was really a self-help book, which is also where I got a lot of my information for this case as well as newspaper articles and magazines. Anyways, she described her dad, literally the chapter is titled Monster. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was not only physically abusive to his wife, Sue, but was sexually abusive to both girls. So, not the best guy. Now, her mother, on the other hand, Sheila described her as like the most caring, loving, compassionate, and supportive mother anybody could ever wish for. And, you know, she really tried to reconcile the marriage and tried to, you know, give that happy family. But eventually, she, as well as the kids, had had enough. She ended up moving herself and her five children from Connecticut, where James was stationed at the time, to Quincy, California, which was near her brother Don and his family because she wanted to get a fresh start. 
Um, initially, when they first moved there, they lived in a small travel trailer that was parked at the Claremont Mobile Village. Um, Sheila described this move and this separation as, if this tells you anything, a, quote, profound sense of relief. So things were not great, but Sue was trying to give them all a fresh start, which, you know, I commend her for because that can't be easy, especially back in that time. And I'm not sure if she worked. Finding information on this case was hard because, spoiler spoiler alert, it's still unsolved. Yeah. Um, So a lot of like the case files that I've used in previous cases that I've done they're not available to the public because it's yeah, still it's technically still, unsolved. Yeah. Technically. <laughs> so once they moved to California uh, at the age of 13, Sheila had actually become pregnant. Um, of course, she was scared, but she said that throughout it all, her mother expressed concern but sympathy. And she was also very compassionate and responsive to Sheila's needs and was really just a a caregiver and just letting her know that everything was going to be okay. That's difficult. Especially being 13 years old. 13. And at that time, which is my next. I was going to say, um, given her history of the sexual, sexual abuse Mm -hmm. doesn't surprise me. Well, and she does say in her book that, um, the, the boy that she laid with, whatever you want to say it was the first time she had ever had consensual yeah yeah sex and i mean it's so difficult you know having somebody that is having to deal with that sexual abuse that is non-consensual and then um where do you go from there you know what i'm saying like you get all that sexual attention at a young age and then it's like what do you do with that because you can't process it right and so a lot of them will become young mothers, yeah. Well, and she also said that this boy really gave her the attention that she needed, basically. Or, trauma. So with that being said, um, because of the time, you know, like I mentioned earlier, and Quincy, California was a small town. Yeah. Um, Sue, her mother, had feared the essentially the judgment and the small mindedness of a small town in regards to a 13 year old pregnant teen. So they came to a mutual agreement or decision that Sheila would actually live with Sue's older sister, Jackie in Jacksonville, Oregon for the duration of her pregnancy, which was also a very loving and caring household. And I mean, it, it sounds sad, but it's actually not because you got to think there's, six of them living in this very small trailer, like travel trailer, very small. And, you know, it it had a bunch of mutual, mutual benefits basically. So once, you know, Sheila was up there living with her aunt and she said it was very loving and supportive. And she actually came back around Thanksgiving of 1980. She had traveled back to see her family before her baby was born for the holidays. Um, and, at this point, when she came back to visit, Sue had moved her, herself and uh, Sheila's other four siblings to a rented cabin, cabin number 28 in Ketty, California. Um, Sheila was super excited about this because there was more space in the trailer, or more space than Damn. the trailer. Yeah. And this, uh, 
this cabin was kind of in a resort, a railroad resort town that was, you know, people would come to visit this place for like hunting, fishing, hiking, nature related activities at the time. It was a good move for them. Yeah, I gotcha. (laughs) Um, So Sheila eventually had the baby and with her mother at her side, after the baby was born, the baby was put into and placed into adoption and adopted by a private party, which of course this was the best option at the time because Sue, a single mom, five kids, if you include Sheila, Sheila was only 13 years old when she gave birth to her. The family didn't have a lot of money and they were trying to restart life. So this was the best decision right. at the time. And a 13 year old. Oh yeah. Physically can't be a mother. Like, I mean, physically, yes, but like emotionally, mentally, like, well, exactly. I mean, you can't provide. I mean, there are ones that are not saying that you can't. It's just right. It's a very difficult situation. Oh, 100%. Um, Sheila actually in her book later on said that, you know, she had returned to Ketty immediately with her mom after they left the hospital. But, you know, the whole ride there, she was full of emotion, crying. I think she said she even cried herself to exhaustion for, you know, giving up a child that she would never get to meet. Cannot even imagine. I can't. The most selfless decision you can ever make. Mm Mm-hmm. But still couldn't even imagine it. Oh, 100%. One, that's that's the thing is like, it. W- I commend her for doing yeah, that because it was, I mean, they there was no way they could add a yeah. sixth, you know. And she processing she a lot of trauma and yeah. yeah. And that's part of being a mother. Right. <laughs> so once uh, Sheila returned to uh, Caddy with her family, she settled in, started school, and she m- was making friends. It was a little awkward at first trying to settle in, um, but she did, and she made friends. She actually made friends with a girl who actually lived next door to them. She was the same age. They lived in cabin number 27. So everything's going good. Now, this brings us to April the 11th, 1981, and this is the night. That everything changes. So Sheila was actually invited to a sleepover with the friend next door. Uh, These were the Seabolts, Zonita and James Sr. And I couldn't find the children's names, but like I said, there's not a whole lot of information on this case. I just know that she was invited to to a sleepover with her friend and... So, yeah, she's going to have a sleepover. They're going to have a girls' night, you know, paint each other's nails, talk yeah. about their feelings, all of that fun stuff. So she was super excited about this. You know, this is, you know, she's just moved across the country, experienced all of this, trauma. a lot of trauma in a yeah. very short amount of yeah. time. So now things she are starting. to do this sleepover and actually be a 13-year-old. I know. She's, she's getting to be, quote, unquote, normal. Yeah. So... That night, Sue had stayed at home with her two youngest, Rick and Greg, and they also had a friend over. His name was Justin. It says, some sources say Justin Smart. Some say Justin Eason. It's still the same person. That'll come at, that'll make sense later. Um, Tina, her youngest sister, had been hanging out over at cabin number 27 all, all afternoon, evening. She was watching TV with, some of the Seabolt's other children. 
So Sheila arrived to her friend's house, which was directly adjacent to theirs. There was just a fence separating their yards. And uh, she arrived there to the cabin a little after 8 p.m. And she had told Tina that their mother wanted Tina home by 10. So Tina left around and arrived home sometime between 9.30 and 10 p.m. Now, from what I understand, because there, each source that I used had a, a little bit of a different variation, not much variation, but from what I understand, John, the oldest brother, was only there for a short time that afternoon. He and Dana Wingate, which was his friend, had returned home earlier that day to get John some clothes for a party that they had planned to attend that evening in Quincy, to which they began to hitchhike back to Quincy from Ketty around 3.30 p.m. This was later confirmed because they were seen around sometime between the hours of 9 and 10 p.m. in downtown Quincy. So we got Sheila at her friend's house. John is gone with his friend. Then Rick, Greg, and Tina are all back at their house. And so, yeah, that's that's where everybody's at. Um, so actually, when when Sheila was invited for the sleepover, she was also actually invited to church on Sunday with the Seabolts. And her mother said she could go. So she was planning to, you know, go to church the next morning with them. However... On that morning, Sheila had mentioned she had forgotten her curling iron. And she said in her book she wanted to look her Sunday best. So she was just going to walk right next door to grab her curling iron and then come back. So she walked next door. Once she opened the front door, this is when she discovered this horrific scene. Lying on the floor in front of the door in the living room, she found... Johnny Sharp, her brother, his hands and feet were bound tightly. He was lying on his back. His head and face were matted with blood, and he was actually beaten so badly that he was barely recognizable. And his throat was slashed. This was all later on, but I figured I'd go over the injuries because obviously when she walked into this, she was shocked, but... Then next to Johnny was his friend, Dana. Uh, He was also bound at the ankles. He was bound with the same cord that Johnny was bound with. So the same cord. Oh, so they were like looped together. Yeah, they were essentially tied together, basically. So you've got one end binding Johnny's ankles and then the other end of that cord binding Dana's. Um, He was lying face down with his head resting on a sofa cushion that was stained in blood. He had also suffered multiple head injuries and later determined that he was strangled to death. Then this is the more horrific one. Trigger alert. Her mother, Sue, was also in the living room. She was lying next to the sofa On her side, she was naked from the waist down. Her panties were stuffed into her mouth as a gag, 
along with a blue bandana that had been secured with the same adhesive tape that was used to bind her. She suffered several stab wounds to the chest along with a slashed throat. And it appeared that the killer or killers had placed a yellow blanket over her to cover her nude body. So I have a question. Okay. While we're here. So with the gruesomeness of the crime, Mm -hmm. if it were me walking into it, like just an outsider, I would assume it's the ex-husband. I could see that, but you got to remember he's all the way in Connecticut. Yeah. It just, the way that the stabs and everything, it just seems like it's something. Passion, like crime of passion. Yeah. It does. It was obviously a very. And I mean, if it was, and I'm not saying it was the ex-husband, but if it was, it would make sense as to why he would want to cover his ex-wife up. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You got a you got a good point there. I don't know what was going through the killer's mind. <laughs> Killer or killers. That's um, a lot of people. But yeah, that three people. Okay, sorry. Continue. No, 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 no. You're good. Ask questions. <laughs> yeah. I'm just I'm just sitting here thinking. And yeah. It, to me it's like, okay, there had to have been maybe multiple people, or I mean, if it's just one person, that's a lot. Well well y- you're you're following the trail here. We'll we'll get there. I'm sure I'm saying we'll, what everyone else is thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll you, we'll get there. You're you're thinking along the same lines as some of the key players later down the road. So, anyways, this was obviously a very horrific scene. Um, in her book, Sheila stated she was in complete shock, and she heard screaming. She didn't realize it was her, apparently, at the time. She was in such shock. Um, She was screaming, and apparently the Seabolts had heard this and sent their oldest son, James, or Jamie is what he's called. So they sent him to investigate, see what was going on, in which he saw the scene and immediately grabbed Sheila by the arm and drug her, drug her back to the Seabolt's cabin. So Sheila said she didn't even, she heard screaming, but she didn't even realize it was her basically until she was kind of like snapped yeah. back to reality yeah. when, yeah, for obvious reasons. Scene. Exactly. Yeah. So once they were back at the Seabolt's cabin, um, James went back to the Sharps cabin, cabin number 28, to search for Tina, Rick, and Greg, because she only saw three people. There are still <clears throat> four other people unaccounted for. Yeah. You got remember Tina, Rick, Greg, and their friend Justin. So he actually found Rick, Greg, and Justin. They were asleep in the bedroom this entire time unharmed do what yeah and we'll go that make sense well we'll go into that later about you know because they're eventually interviewed by the police but and they didn't wake up with her screaming i guess not they said that they said they did not wow and but there was no sign of tina tina was gone 
Yeah. Uh, The back door was discovered to be unlocked. Uh, James and his father had actually had the three boys exit the house through the bedroom window. So they would keep them from having to walk through and see that scene. Which I thought was well thought of on their part. Yeah, and I mean, they could have potentially contaminated some things. Yeah, I I think that... I'm sure he wasn't thinking that at the time. Yeah, I don't think that they were thinking that because... Which we'll get into that also later that comes up about him walking through the crime scene. I think it was more along the lines to keep them from seeing. Yeah. To keep them from... For obvious reasons. Because that's their mom and their brother. And so they got them out of the house through the bedroom window. And after that, James immediately notified the site owners, uh, the site owner, Jan Albin. She actually lived in cabin number 25. And around 8.05 a.m., she had actually called the police to notify them in which they were dispatched immediately. So the Plumas County Sheriff's Office arrived on the scene and like I said, there's not a whole lot of information except for what was in the newspapers because of the case still technically being opened. I can't go into like a whole lot of detail like I have on some of my other previous cases, but they found two bloody household knives, a hammer. They also, there were no signs of forced entry. And they issued a all points bulletin on April the 13th to the surrounding counties. Uh, One of the points being, you know, a bolo for Tina because Tina was missing at this point. Yeah. And they also issued on that same bulletin to, for all local hospitals to notify if they had treated anyone for knife wounds or cuts in the last 48 hours. So once the investigation started, um, the Department of Justice and FBI were actually brought in early on in this investigation. They didn't have a whole lot to go on because the Sharps were relatively new to the area. They didn't really have a whole lot to go on. So of course they brought in the DOJ and the FBI because there was a kidnapping of a minor And they began to interview residents. One resident had recalled seeing a green van. I think that was actually the Seabolts stated they had seen a green van, an unknown green van parked at the house around 9 PM the night before. Some had recalled seeing a dark colored Datsun parked outside. It's like a Nissan. Oh (laughs) yeah. Datsun was a, Okay. Yeah. So. It was a, like a brand. Gotcha. Yeah. I knew I had heard yeah. of that model or brand before, uh-huh. but I couldn't picture it. Yeah. So one couple had remembered, had mentioned that they had heard what sounded like muffled screams around 1.30 a.m. But because they couldn't figure out the source and maybe they thought they were hearing things because they were woken up out of a dead sleep. They went back to sleep. Mm. If you hear screams, <sighs> you might want to say something. 
Right. But I could I could kind of see where they're coming from because if I was woken up out of a dead sleep. And you know, I mean, there are five people living in this house at the same time, too. And I mean, mm-hmm. hell, I mean, I have five people living in my house and three <laughs> dogs. But I will say, if I hear screaming, of course, I'm waking up and checking on everybody. Right. But I can kind of see where it's like not as. Maybe they woke up and they're like, eh, I'm just hearing, I'm hearing shit. I'm just going to go back to sleep. Right. Right. And they could have been like, oh, my gosh, it's just this is my normal, loud, chaotic house. Right. <laughs> so. Who knows? Exactly. Uh, a couple named Marilyn and Marty Smart, which was actually the mother and stepfather to Justin that I mentioned earlier. They lived in cabin number 26. So 27 is the Seabolts, 28 is the Sharps, and then 26 is the Smarts. Okay. Police conducted more interviews with Marty Smart, and at some point he had recalled seeing an unknown man at the bar that, quote, looked out of place, said he noticed the guy because his appearance was off. He was a white male, early 20s, 5'7 to 5'8, long hair and a ponytail with a dark mustache and a buck knife in his belt. Little unique looking guy. Probably noticed him too. He also described a second man at the bar that showed up at the bar around 1 a.m. He bought a case of beer. He was also early 20s, early 30s, maybe 6'1 to 6'2, short curly hair. And he also mentioned in this in one of the interviews that he had lost a claw hammer that went missing. Do what? Yeah. Okay, whatever. He then suggested to investigators that his son, Justin, may have witnessed something. The Department of Justice, or DOJ, eventually located Bo, and they questioned him Questioned him around May the 4th. He had given conflicting details about the night of the in- incident and his whereabouts. However, both him and Marty were eventually ruled out. I'm not sure the fuck how. And... It Apparently Marty they, they were drinking. I I I don't I don't know. It didn't Marty. I couldn't really figure out how they I'm were ruled out. Rick. Sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And uh I think part of it was apparently Marty passed a polygraph test. Big fucking deal. Anyways, with the investigation in full force, there was really not a whole lot of evidence to go off of. Uh there was very little physical evidence from the perpetrator or perpetrators. Investigators did manage to recover an unidentified fingerprint from a handrail that was on the stairs leading from the back door of the cabin. That was really about it. So police turned the focus of their investigation to the three boys, the three witnesses that were there. Maybe they could get something from them. Uh, Greg and Rick both stated that they didn't really have much to give them. They were asleep. They were asleep the entire time, had no idea what was going on, which I I guess if you're sleeping pretty hard, maybe they fell asleep watching TV. So maybe the TV was loud or something. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but they're they're young. Yeah. They're really young. Yeah. So they 
the police began to talk to Justin. Justin was placed under hypnosis as a form to kind of separate from reality from fiction, basically, because, you know, in hypnosis, I mean, I've never been hypnotized, but supposedly, you know, it helps you, you know, maybe remember things or I, I don't know. Anyways, he was, this has been used in several investigations that doesn't sound like a fun time no i wouldn't want to be hypnotized and reveal my deepest darkest you don't want to know (laughs) it's real dark in there (laughs) (laughs) it's a scary movie man (laughs) anyways you know they didn't they so they placed justin under hypnosis to try to get something they didn't have anything like so in may uh may on may the 19th of night of that same year this is when his first session was done of under hypnosis he said he dreamt he was on a boat which investigators and i think the psychologist chalked it up to maybe they were watching the love boat when they fell asleep so maybe this is where it came from this hypnosis was performed by dr jerry dash uh he was a psychologist at the children's hospital of los angeles long black hair and dark sunglasses (laughs) i don't know what song that is but it sounds familiar it It does sound familiar sorry um he said oh god did you record that (laughs) (laughs) yes you threw me off where was i (laughs) he said it was a long black hair mustache and dark glasses he said the man was carrying a hammer and first threw John overboard. Justin then described a body laying on the bow covered in a sheet or bow. I think that's how the term for on a boat. I'm on a boat, man. Sorry. Jesus. <laughs> I'm on a boat, motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, you know. Oh my God, I gotta get through this case. Step brothers. We're back at it Boats again. Boats and hoes. Boats and hoes. <laughs> yep sorry you can tell it's late um so back to where i was i'm so sorry no it's the adhd for i me. know i know i'm sorry it's late we got to get through this case somehow you know this is how we do it we get through it with humor if that's not for you don't let the door hit you where the good lord split you with that being said back to justin's first story with under hypnosis uh he described a body lying on the bow bow when he looked under it he saw glenna sharp and she had had a knife wound in her chest he attempted to patch the wound with a cloth but a cloth but eventually threw it in the water during a second session he changed his story to where he admits he witnessed the murders justin said he awoke after hearing unusual noises coming from the living room while he and the other young boys were sleeping He decided to investigate the sounds and peered through the crack in the door where he saw two men enter the home and stand in front of Glenna, who was sitting on the sofa. He described one of the men as having a mustache and long black hair, whilst the other was clean shaven with short blonde hair and wearing army boots. He remembered both were wearing dark glasses. Don't even. Sorry. <laughs> that may have been sunglasses. I wear my sunglasses. 
Once again, he just descri- literally have a song for everything. I'm sorry. <laughs> Once again, he described how John and Dana returned home and confronted the two men and a fight breaking out between them. As Dana attempted to run, he was hit with a hammer by the man with the blonde hair and John was attacked by the man with the black hair when he tried to help his mother. At this point, Justin said he hid behind the door and continued to watch the events in the living room. He saw the men tying up John and Dana, and then Tina came into the living room holding a blanket, wondering what was going on. He said one of the men took Tina outside through the back door, and the man with the black hair used a pocket knife to stab Glenna in her chest. The man who took Tina then returned, removing a hunting knife someone had stuck in one of the walls, picked up the blanket, and left again. Some of the details during Justin's hypnosis session actually matched with what was known about the murders. Justin also worked with a sketch artist eventually to have composite drawings done of the two men that were based on his descriptions. The first suspect was between five foot five eleven to six two with short dark blonde hair whilst the second suspect was shorter, around 5'6 to 5'10, with long, black, greasy hair. Both men were believed to be in their late 20s to early 30s and wearing gold-rimmed sunglasses. Don't even. <laughs> She's smiling at me. So this kind of, at this point, goes along with the one of the men that Marty, his stepfather, had said he had seen... You're fired. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm sorry. That was easy to talk, though. <laughs> okay, sorry. <clears throat> Where- <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. Where was I? <laughs> Look, I have been up since 5 o'clock this morning. Me too, sis. Oh, this is why this is going all over the place. So once they got there composite sketch that was what was circulated you know to try to get something you know drum up some kind of leads and that is where we're gonna end part one yes (laughs) (laughs) sorry guys it's another multiple parter i just can't stop can't stop well i mean and apparently we can't stay on track tonight anyway squirrel so so yeah so we we probably just need to go on and wrap this (laughs) wrap it up start tomorrow start fresh so yeah this is uh what are your thoughts yeah i'm i'm curious to see everything leading up to where we're at now like you know it's like it's a it's a really sad case it is sad and but and it's unsolved so it's like i don't know i need to, i've got lots of questions that's all and i'm ready for answers join us back tomorrow for part two i promise it will be out tomorrow okay it'll be out tomorrow i won't make you wait a week if you're still hanging in there with us yep and with that we're signing off tonight guys thanks for joining us let me know because you know I wear my sunglasses I gotta go
<laughs> Sorry, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs>